0: So a lot of this that I'm going to share with you today actually has come from a book. that's called Answering the Call, and it's by John Enzer. And if you ever get a chance, I would recommend that you read it. So first, we're going to look at what God's Word says uh, about the unborn, what God says about abortion, even though the Word isn't in the Bible, and how we should respond. So what does God say about the life of the unborn? Well, the first thing is human life is sacred, and it belongs to God. You know, we assert that all human life is created by God. It belongs to God. It's sacred because we were made in the image of God. Genesis one twenty-seven says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Since every human being has been created by God, we possess intrinsic value, not relative value. The value of a human life isn't based on the quality of that life. The value of human life isn't based on how that life can serve the needs of others. Every human life has intrinsic value because we were all created in the image and the likeness of God. Therefore, no human life is worthless. No human life should be burdensome or just cast away for any reason because human life, because of the fact that we were created in the image and likeness of God, has intrinsic value that comes from our creator, created in the image of God, which means the human spirit has no size. You know, God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, but God is a spirit and we're created in the image of God and the human spirit has no size. It cannot be contained. The person created in the image and likeness of God is fully there from conception, regardless of the size or the capabilities of the mind or the body. So human life is sacred and belongs to God. God is created, and he's concerned about the unborn. David in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 says, For you, God, formed my inward parts. You, God, knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was not one of them. See, David considers his preborn life in his mother's womb. And he sees a me in there, personally being created by a you, God. David wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, And it shows us that the Lord recognizes a person before the full development of the body. A person is known by God. So God, he said, God, you saw my unformed substance. That life doesn't just go upon whether the capabilities are there, but God is the one who evaluates life. And David shows that life begins at conception. Science confirms what Scripture teaches After the sperm penetrates and fertilizes the egg, 46 human chromosomes come together in a -a one-of-a-kind genetic design that determines a person's eye and hair color, gender, skin tone, even the intricate swirl of the fingertips. At conception, all of the genetic material that we shall ever have at all stages of human development, from a zygote to an embryo, a fetus, a newborn, an infant, a toddler, a child, a teenager, an adult, is all present at the very moment of conception. John Stott, a famous English Christian leader, once said, alluding to unborn children, that they are just growing into the fullness of the humanity that they already possess. And through the use of technology that's been created, like ultrasounds, We are able to see what God through the Spirit allowed David to write down to us in Psalm 139. This God fearfully and wonderfully knitting together and creating in the womb of a woman life. Life that's there even before this child comes out of the womb. The next thing is the life of babies in the womb are talked of similar to the babies that are outside of the womb in the Bible. In the worldview of the Bible, children are looked at as children, whether they're inside a womb or inside of a house. An Old Testament example of this is Genesis 25-22. It says of Rebekah when she became pregnant with Jacob and Esau. It says the children struggled together within her. The word that's used for children is the same Hebrew word that's used for children outside of the womb or all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we can look to Luke chapter 1, verses 39 and 44. This is after Mary was was met by the angel Gabriel and was told that she would conceive in her womb a child who would be Christ the Lord. And then Mary immediately went to her cousin, Elizabeth, who was also pregnant with child. And it said, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Mary visited Elizabeth when Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John the Baptist. The word baby that's used for John the Baptist as he's in the womb of Elizabeth in verses 41 and 44 of chapter 1 of Luke is the same Greek, Greek word brephos that's used in Luke chapter 2 verses 12 and verse 16. They talk about the newborn baby Jesus that the shepherds came to come and visit and also look at the words of Elizabeth when she refers to Mary Mary. Soon after her conception immediately went down, so maybe a few days later she's showing up, and Elizabeth says to her that the mother of my Lord, not the one who will soon be the mother of my Lord, but the mother of my Lord, that Jesus, even as a zygote, his personhood is, is, is recognized even at that early stage soon after conception. So how does God view abortion? You know, the Bible does not say the word abortion in it, but there are verses that we can look at that gives us an idea of how God feels about abortion. The first one is God is responsible for life and death. First Samuel chapter two, verse six says the Lord brings death and he makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up in Exodus 20, verse 13 in the Ten Commandments, we're told you shall not murder. All life is created by God, and it belongs to God. And there is no one individual that has the right to take a life or another or even the life of himself. Life belongs to God. That's for individuals. I know some of you may think, well, what about capital punishment or war? Well, God speaks about that in Romans chapter 13, where where the government is his servant who bears the sword. So it may be done wrongly, but in those cases, that is not considered murder. It it is God using an instrument that has been raised up to be His servant to administer justice even in the midst of our fallen world. God is outraged against the slaughter of innocent children. Ezekiel 16 verses 20 through 21, He says, Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had born to Me, you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotry so small a matter, you slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Now these were children that were outside of the womb, but we've seen from the Bible that God looks at children in the womb no differently than outside of the womb. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17 says that one thing that God hates are hands that shed innocent blood. The penalty for death or injury to the unborn. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, if there's harm to who? Harm to the woman? i also think this verse alludes to harm to that unborn child who came out prematurely. If there is harm, they shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for bone, burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That God considers the life of this unborn child to be just as valuable as the life of those that are already outside of the womb. About when a child was conceived as a result of rape or incest. It's a very tricky thing. Like most people will say, you know what, I don't agree with abortion until it comes to the time that a, a woman has been raped or incest has been committed. And that's a very tender situation. And even in light of that, only about 1% of abortions that happen in our nation are for that reason. And, well, and I think, what would God say to that? Deuteronomy 24:16: 16, His fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. A woman being raped, incest, and that is an insidious, wicked thing. But that does not invalidate the value of this child and of this life that is growing in the womb. And there are many in our society that have been born as a result of a rape or incest. So would we say to them that your life is not valuable, your life is not precious because of the means of conception by which it occurred? Or do we take one sin that has occurred and think that we can, on top of it, put another sin and it makes everything right? That the value of human life has intrinsic value because of the fact that God created it. And the means by which that child was conceived does not invalidate the value, and the worth of that child. How about when a child may be born deformed or retarded? Exodus 4.11, Then the Lord said to Moses, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The capabilities of the body, the capabilities of the mind are not what determine life. Life is given by the Creator. And just because we don't think that life has value to the God who created it, that life is valuable. That life is precious. So how should we respond? One, is we should not shed innocent blood. You know, at nearly 8 in 10 women report religious affiliations who have abortions, nearly 8 in 10. And around 40% of women that have abortions they would label themselves as being of the Protestant faith. That we as the people of God should not be people that are shedding innocent blood. Two, we should not accept the shedding of innocent blood by others. That innocent blood is happening every day in our country. I remember talking with a friend of mine. We were talking about William Wilberforce. And he was talking about in that day how heinous it was because men were being slaughtered and literally hanged and left so that people could look upon and gaze upon their dead bodies, and began to talk about, well, you know, in our day it is not as gruesome as that. But in our day, innocent blood is being shed every day. And the thing that sometimes for us, we don't see it, because it's not out in the street, but every day, thousands of innocent lives are being slaughtered. And we should not even accept the shedding of innocent blood. Deuteronomy 21, 1-9 teaches that we don't have to be the one shedding Innocent blood to have blood guilt. But we're guilty just for knowing about it. The people are to hear that the taking of innocent life or the passive acceptance of death of the innocent is unacceptable. The passive passive acceptance of murder, you know what it begins to do to our heart? It begins to coarsen our heart towards human life. And when we don't value human life at its most delicate, intimate stage, it becomes a slippery slope where we don't begin to value human life throughout human life, whether it's the beginning of life or the end of life, that after a while, if we get on this slippery slope, that we'll make values and determinations as to whose life is precious and whose life is valuable based on what they can contribute to society. But if we have a biblical view, then we know all life is precious because it was created by God and belongs to God and has intrinsic value regardless of the capabilities of that life or the usefulness of that life. And the third thing we can do is we can defend the weak and we can rescue the innocent. Psalm 82.3 says, Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Proverbs 24.10 says, If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? Proverbs 31, eight. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. We're to defend the weak, we're to rescue the innocent, and love demands it. You guys remember the story of the Good Samaritan, where the lawyer comes to Jesus, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how do you interpret the law? He says, well, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus says, you have interpreted interpreted it well. And then he asks Jesus a follow-up question. He says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives the story of a man who was on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. Maybe the other way around, Jericho to Jerusalem. But he's on this road and he's beaten and he's left for dead. And there's a priest who comes and sees him and he walks to the other side of the street. There's a Levite who comes and sees him and he walks to the other side of the street. And then a Samaritan man comes and he sees this man and he tends to him. And he picks him up. He cares for him. He puts him on his own horse. And he takes him to an inn. And he pays for this man to be taken care of. And so Jesus says, which one of them was his neighbor? He said, the, 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 the last one. He tells him, go and do likewise. That we're to be a neighbor. You know what? Love, love demands that we be a neighbor even to our smallest neighbor. You know, it's not just enough that we're not the ones who have shed innocent blood. But love demands that we do something. Love demands that we don't walk to the other side of the street and say, I I wasn't a part of that. Love demands that I do something. Love moves me to action to be involved with speaking up and defending those who have no voice for themselves. Now, as I've probably said this, you know what? All of us probably come under this weight because, you know what? I am guilty. I am guilty of everything that I have spoken. And so when I come under the, 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 the weight of what I've said, I stand before a holy God guilty. And I could stand before a holy God feeling so defeated. And some of you, even if you've never shed innocent blood, you could feel like you're under the judgment of God because maybe you've lived and you haven't thought about lives that have been killed in their mother's womb. Never once have you said something when there's been something that have gone on and all of us could feel under that weight. But the one thing I want you to realize that our God is a God who is not only a God of truth, he's a God of grace. He's a holy God who is a God of love. And I am so grateful for God's grace that opened my eyes and my heart to the reality of this one who, yes, he, he made life, and He's the only one who has the right to take life, but yet a God who came for me for my life. So let me share with you some of my story. When I was a 19-year-old teenager in college, my girlfriend and I had an abortion. I was a kid who grew up, grew up going to church. You know, I, I, I knew what God's Word said on most things. I grew up going to church. I graduated from high school a virgin. I would never, ever guess that I would be one who would one day, um, me and my girlfriend, have an abortion. But yet I grew up with this distorted, twisted view of sexual intimacy and sexual relationships. You know, I I grew up in the midst of church, but in the midst of a culture that was so uh, sensual like our culture today. And things that I saw even from my mom and dad gave me this warped perception of sex and intimacy and love and the things that I watched on the media and the things that my friends told me and even things that were happening in my church gave me this warped perception of God. My mom and dad divorced when I was very young and I was a kid who was looking for love. I was a kid who'd do anything to to find love. I'd hang out with friends and do all kinds of things even if I thought they were wrong if somebody showed me acceptance. But when I got to college, I got into my first relationship with a girlfriend. And I thought I loved her, and and she loved me. We loved each other. And very early on, we got into a sexual relationship. We weren't thinking about being a mom or being a dad. I was involved in this relationship and thinking things were going good. We, We love each other. Things are going well. And three months into this relationship, she became pregnant. And that wasn't a part of our plan. I wasn't ready to be a dad. She wasn't ready to be a mom. I wasn't ready to drop out of school to get a job. I wasn't ready to marry her and and have a family. And so in our minds, we kind of thought we have this future ahead of us. We were kind of the first two in our families to go off to college. We had this dream that we'll get a college education, we'll make some money, we'll have a good life, and a baby didn't fit into that. And so we, we rationalized that the best thing for us to do would be to have an abortion Because we can always have children later. It won't affect our relationship. Maybe we'll get married. Maybe things will work out and things will be fine. And so we decided it was for us either have the baby or have the abortion. Having the baby didn't fit into our plans. And so literally we sacrificed our child for our own dreams, for our own hopes, for our own plans. And just thought that life would go on as normal. And this young lady who I said I loved, she goes off to the abortion clinic and she comes back and she is crying unconsolably, uncontrollably. There's nothing I can say to to, to ease her pain and to ease her hurt. This young lady that I say I loved, I allowed to go through such a traumatic experience. I said I loved her. I didn't protect her heart and neither did I protect the life of the child that was growing in her womb. But we thought everything would go on as normal. And pretty soon afterwards, our relationship began to break up. And so I'm going through the pain of having the loss of this relationship and dealing with the guilt of the fact of this abortion. And so I try to medicate my pain. And to medicate my pain, you know what? I I figure there's more women that are out there, and I can medicate my pain with them. I medicate my pain with alcohol. I medicate my pain with my education because even though I was a failure in this relationship and a failure as a father to a child in the womb, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove to everybody that I'm a success. And this is how I lived. I just chased after women and alcohol and education trying to medicate my pain and medicate my hurt. And three years later, I find myself in a similar place, another young lady, and now she's pregnant. And many of the excuses that I had at 19, I no longer have anymore. I've graduated from college. I got a job. I don't have those same excuses. And what I did at 19 years of age, it didn't help anything. It actually brought a lot of pain to my heart. It brought a lot of shame and it brought a lot of guilt. And as we began to talk about what we were going to do and as she began to kind of hint around to the fact that if I'm not raising a child on my own, it it brought up red flags in my mind that maybe she's thinking about an abortion and I didn't want to go that route. So in my young dumb, blinded mind. I figured I'm going to marry you because I'm not going to abort another child. We'll get married. I'll put a ring on my finger and that will make everything okay. I got married to this young lady, not because I loved her and and I chose life for this child, not because all of a sudden I was pro-life, but I was looking for some way that I could atone for the mistake that I made when I was 19 years of age. So I put a ring on my finger and I marry this young lady and nothing changes about me. I still have this pain and this hurt and this anger that's building up in me. And now feeling like I'm in a marriage because I've been forced to be in a marriage. And there's this anger that constantly spews out on my wife. I find it very hard. I have a son who's born, but I find it very hard to bond with my son. There just seems to be this distance that's there, and I'm still seeking to medicate my pain, so now I'm a married man, and I'm running out on my wife, and I'm committing adultery, and I'm running around still looking for sex and alcohol and a career and education to fulfill me, and this is how I live my life because I am trying to find an answer for the pain and the hurt that I have in my heart. And at 26 years of age, by the amazing grace of God, God revealed His Son to me. In the midst of me, headed through a divorce, and I feel like my life in many regards is falling apart, God opened my eyes to the reality of His Son, to the reality of His love, to the reality of His forgiveness, to the reality of His grace to the reality of a God who wanted to take the broken pieces of my life and even make beauty out of ashes that God began to do a transforming work in my life. God began to take a man who was sexual sexually promiscuous and God began to even help me to live in a way that was of purity. A man who was a drunk and God began to sober up my life and God began to transform me and took me out of a career that I had looked to as a God and chased after and within a year was leaving from that job to follow after a God who would love a wretch like me so much so that he would give his son to die on the cross to bear all of my sin, to bear my shame, to bear my guilt, to shed his blood, the blood that should have been shed from me, he would shed it for me. Within a year I left from my job. Because this God had captured my heart. Four years later, I married my wife to And I'm a Christian man. And I love Jesus. And I realize what he's done for me. But yet there were still some things that I was wrestling with in my heart. And there was this anger I had inside of me that would come out. And it would come out on my wife. And it would come out on my kids. And it would just come out. There was this insecurity that I had. I would seep down into depression. And, 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 and I would just have this low self-esteem about myself. I would be paralyzed to make decisions to lead my family. And I still found it hard as my wife and I were having kids, it would be hard for me to, to bond with my children. And I was wondering, what is going on with this? In the grace of God, a couple of years back, I was asked to speak at a, a pregnancy center banquet. And they wanted somebody who had had abortion in his story and was now pro-life. And at the time, I was the chaplain of the Cincinnati Bengals. They wanted somebody with a sports-related tie, and I fit that. And I spoke there, and it was like speaking nowhere else, that God took me to a place where I began to realize the depths of my sin as I had never realized it before. And yet at the same time, I, I began to understand in a better way the immeasurable grace that God had poured out on me for my There was a gentleman who was there who came to me and he said, David, what have you done to invite Jesus to really minister to that pain that you've experienced from the loss of fatherhood due to an abortion? That had been 22 years ago. I was thinking by now, certainly I'm over it. He said, well, can I give you a book? He gave me a book called Fatherhood Aborted. As I began to read it, all these different things that I had struggled with, I began to see that they were tied to this abortion loss that I experienced as a teenager when I was in college. I got involved with an eight-week Bible study with a man, and God began to really minister to me his forgiveness as I had never known it before, that God began to minister to me um, his hope as I had never known it before, and God had began to minister to me that this child that I rejected that I did not save, that I did not protect, that this child was in heaven and this child had no anger and no malice towards me. That maybe one day when I come to see my Jesus who has died for my sin, that maybe this child will be there welcoming me into heaven. That God took a man who had no value for life and God has made me a champion for the unborn. God has made me a minister of compassion For men and women who find themselves in the throes of an unintended or unwanted pregnancy. And God has used me to minister his hope, his grace, his healing. To men and women that have been broken by an abortion in their past. One thing I think as we think about the church and our response to abortion. Sometimes I think we miss it. Because the women, the men and women who are having abortions. Or who have unintended or unwanted pregnancies. That their lives are very precious to God. That they are precious to God. That sometimes, so often, we can get so into the life of this child that we forget about the life of this mom or the life of this dad. That God, too, created them. He made them in His image and in His likeness. We can get caught up in the innocence of this child, which it is, and they've done no harm, no wrong. And we can kind of throw the mom and the dad under the bus and we can just kind of look at them and we can throw rocks over a fence and say, have that baby, have that life. But if the mom or the dad doesn't know Christ, do you realize that they are blinded? Do you realize that they are living in darkness and they are living in death? And now we're asking them to make a life affirming decision and we're doing it in a way that's very insensitive sometimes. We're doing it from a distance and just yelling at them, don't you know how precious that baby is? And we're not letting them know how precious they are to God, that your life is so precious to God, that God so loved the world, he so loved you, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, that Jesus did not come into this world to condemn you. That Jesus came into this world to save you, to rescue you, to restore you, that you could experience life and life to its full. That in order to reach these children, we have to reach the moms and the dads. We have to minister the grace and the hope and the love of Jesus Christ to them. Sometimes for us, we, you know, it, it's the baby being born, but the baby being born, you know, what good is it? And we want babies to be born. But do we just want babies to be born into a cycle of sin that has gone from one generation to another generation to another generation? The first birth, we are conceived in iniquity. We are born into sin. That's why Jesus came so we could be born again. It's not the sexual immorality. It's not the unintended pregnancy. It's not even the abortion. Those are symptoms. The root of it is the fact that man at his core is alienated from God because of his sin. It's, it's, it's man having an encounter with Jesus Christ that we can be reconciled to God. Man, how glorious is it? If a child can be born into the world to a mom and to a dad who have had an encounter with Jesus Christ and Jesus is transforming their life so that this child that is born can now have an encounter with the giver of life through the very ones who were birthed them into this world because we have taken time to come alongside of their mom and dad and show them the incredible love of Jesus Christ that God wants to transform lives. And how about for the man or the woman that has been broken by an abortion in their past and have walked around even in our churches with a load of shame and guilt upon their back when the Bible tells us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that the forgiveness and the grace of God, God wholly accepts you, not because of you. He wholly accepts you because of his son. Because of the righteousness of His Son. That you have a brand new identity. Your sin and the things of your past is not your identity. That God sees you through a new lens and He sees you through the lens of His Son. And He sees you through the purity of that blood that has washed you, that has cleansed you, that has transformed you. And no matter what you have in your past, there is no condemnation because God has given you a righteousness that comes from Him by His grace, by your trusting and believing in His Son. And when that message begins to radically capture our heart, whether it's abortion or any other sin that we've dealt with, we will stop being silent in our world and we will raise up and be the men and women God has called us to be. And we recognize we stand where we stand and we do what we do, not because we're perfect, but a God who is perfect and righteous and just and gracious has transformed us and he sees us in a way that is radically different from all the experiences and sins. Of our past. And that's why today I could stand here by God's grace and God's grace alone. To be a champion for unborn children. To be a minister of compassion to the broken. To be one who can offer hope and healing to those who desperately need it. How should we respond? I'm going to wrap up just a few things how we should respond. If I can find my page. What is God saying to you? What now? You guys remember when you heard about the shooting that ha- happened at Sandy Hook Elementary School a couple years back? You remember that? You know, we've had a lot of mass shootings in our nation, but this one was different. It was different because of the age of the people that were involved. Twenty-seven people lost their lives. Twenty of those people were sixth grade, six, six-year-old, seven-year-old kids. And because of the age of those kids I don't know about you, but I remember when I heard that, I, I remember the outrage in my heart. I remember thinking, I have kids that age, and I, I remember thinking like, that, just that there was something that welled up in our hearts that said something needs to be done about this." There was something. But what about every day when 3,000 children are dying in the wombs of their mother? Fifty seven million children since 1973. Is there not a cause for us as the people of God to take a stand on? For the most part, we've been silent. For many of us, we need to repent and ask God to forgive us for our silence. Is there something that you need to ask God for repentance for as it deals with what we've talked about? For many of us, at a minimum, we can pray. We can pray that God will move by His Spirit in the hearts of men and women, that God will minister to those who are broken and hurting, who are going through unintended, unwanted pregnancies, who have had abortions and can minister their grace to Him. We can pray that God will move the hearts of politicians to change laws that reflect the value and dignity of human life. We need to teach our sons and daughters, especially those in the community of faith, God's designed for sex, God's designed for marriage. So many of the, the the pregnancies, unintended, unwanted pregnancies that lead to abortion are unmarried women, unmarried men. That we need to trumpet the truth of God's design for marriage, relationships, sexual intimacy, and stop allowing the culture to be the voice that continually reminds and tells our kids and drives them down the path of destruction through the lies of the enemy. Would you be willing to minister the truth and compassion of Christ to women and men who are in unwanted pregnancies and possibly considering abortion? Would you come alongside a mom and dad that you can be a voice to speak for that child and show worth and dignity to that mom and dad? Would you be willing to minister to women and men who have been affected by abortion in their past? And if so, Cornerstone Pregnancy Center has a need for volunteers. Volunteers. We have a need for people that will give to the mission of seeing lives saved and moms and dads transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the real needs that we have is Cornerstone is going from being just a, a regular pregnancy center to a medical medical center where we will be able to offer women ultrasounds. And, and when women are able to see that life formed in their womb, even women that are high risk for abortion, that it's a statistic about 80% of them will change their minds and choose life for that child when they see that child growing in the womb. And Cornerstone is in the process of converting to that, but we've run into an obstacle. We need an an obstetrician or a radiologist who would be willing to volunteer their time to read scans so that we can convert to a medical center where more women can come and more women can be touched with the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. So when you leave today, if you know somebody who's an obstetrician or radiologist, or if you're one, would you pray about helping Cornerstone to continue to save lives and compassionately minister the grace of Christ to men and women that are broken? And lastly, perhaps you sit in this room and you've suffered in silence from an abortion in your past. God longs for you to experience His healing and His forgiveness. God longs for you to experience Maybe you've never confessed that to God. And if not, the first start is to confess your sin to God. And know that as you confess your sin to Him, He is faithful and just and He will forgive you. And He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And perhaps you need to forgive someone else. Maybe you feel like someone forced you to that or nobody gave you input into that decision. That just as Christ offers His grace and forgiveness to us, that we can offer grace And forgiveness to someone else. But admit your pain to God. Invite him into that. Allow God to minister healing. And hope to your heart. And at Cornerstone. We would love to partner with you in that. That if you're a woman. There are groups that will get together with women. To help them to process that pain. And to go through the healing. That God wants to minister to you. And for any men that have experienced that hurt. And pain from the loss of fatherhood. I would be more than willing to meet with you process that pain, to invite God into that space and to allow Him to deeply heal the hurts of your heart. So let's pray. I know this has been heavy, but I pray also it's been hopeful. Oh, Father, we thank You. Thank You for creating each and every one of us in Your image and in Your likeness. Thank you for the incredible worth and the incredible value that you have given to us as people. And God, I pray that you would help us to see the worth and value of every human being. Whether they're in the womb of their mother or whether they're at the end of their life. Whatever their capabilities, whatever their size. Would you help us to see human life as you see it? Would you search our hearts, God, and where we have failed, to live out what You've called us to as Your people when it comes to the area of sanctity of life. Would You bring us to a place where we confess that sin and receive Your forgiveness and walk in Your grace and in Your power because of who You are and how incredible Your love is for us. And so, Father, speak to us what You would have for us to do. Help us to follow the leading of Your Spirit And in the process of that, Lord, would you save many lives and would you cause your compassion to be ministered to so many who are hurting and broken, even in our midst in our neighborhoods in our families and in this world. So we pray that the light of your gospel would go forth in an even greater way, that those who are in darkness will see that light and they will run to you, that they will no longer hide behind their shame and their guilt. But they will run to the one who bore their sin. They will run to the one who bore their shame. They will run to the one who bore their guilt and who paid the price in full as he died on the cross for their sin. Jesus, have your way. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.